Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. On this week's podcast, as schools reopen, has the government finally done its homework or are we likely to end up in a fifth wave detention? And what has that last year taught parents about teaching, about their kids and about their parenting skills? While the budget unravels, is the enamel beginning to chip off dishy rishy? Can the nighttime industry recover from the double blow of COVID-19 and Brexit? And finally, as lockdown forces us to scrutinize our buying habits, is the healthy reaction to hoard or to declutter? Does collecting enrich our environment or is it just bad cheese? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. We hope you're enjoying the show, and if you are, you can always back us on Patreon. You will get our shows a day early and advert-free, and free access to our first-ever solo live Zoom on Thursday, 25th of March at 8 p.m. Regulars Ahir Shah, Yasmin Sarhan, and Arthur Snell are on the panel with special guest Brian Klaas, our unofficial U.S. politics correspondent, so it should be tremendous fun. Registration is free and exclusive to Patreon backers. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now let us meet today's panel. First up, lower your gaze for the queen of the LSE's COVID-19 blog, Rods Taylor. Hello. <laughs> the much ballyhooed interview with the Sussexes finally aired on Sunday in the States. Was it as explosive as trailed or a bit of a damp squib? It was pretty explosive, as everyone has probably heard by now, the revelation chiefly that a member of the royal family was concerned about how dark their son Archie's skin might be was particularly striking. And of course, the revelation that Meghan had considered or thought thought about killing herself because of the pressure she was under. I guess the big question is, why does the family seem to have this effect on young women who marry into it? It's not the only royal family to struggle with that to a certain extent. The current empress of Japan struggled with depression for a decade. Um, I was talking to a Japanese expert for for another bunker last week, and he was telling me about her very sad story. But perhaps forcing a woman to dress up perform and endure whatever hate the press chooses to throw at her without the right of reply is in fact quite a primitive and brutal thing to do to a human being and perhaps we should just stop doing it. It seems to me the Sussex plan has always been a sort of takeover of the royal brand stateside. You know, the symbolism of the queen of network TV interviewing them wasn't lost. Will they care how the British press reacts? I think their hope is that it won't matter and that young people in particular who they're trying to appeal to aren't influenced by the British tabloids to the same extent. They basically just want to cut out that relationship. And it's hard to blame them because the British press, not just the tabloids either, are a malign force in this country. They've regarded their relationship with the royal family as mutually beneficial And they still don't really understand how it's broken down over Meghan. I think you've seen that confusion and fury in the past two weeks Mm. with the coverage, with with the front pages. They have been extraordinarily bitter. Yes, I've seen several people making the point that they went to the uh, estates in order to have their privacy, but now they're all over the media, which I think is a 
is a ridiculous thing to say, actually, because they've left a, a negative press environment in which they were being papped and had no control to go to a, a, a press environment that sees them quite positively and in which they have control of where, when they appear and where. That's a big difference, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And it's very much something that arises from social media and the control that people have over the way they're portrayed on Instagram. And it gives them much more control in terms of what's, what images are being put out, what message is being put out. And I think Meghan and Harry like that and they appreciate that control. Also joining us, the rightful heir to the throne of comedy, three cheers for broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, hello. On Saturday, Nigel Farage announced his retirement for the eighth or ninth time in the last few years, I forget, um, resigning as leader of Reform UK, the party he founded two months ago. Do you think it'll stick this time? I genuinely think that it will stick this time just because he's achieved the main thing, hasn't he? I mean, like, if the main achievable thing, anyway, you know, like with Brexit, you're like, we're in the European Union, I hate the European Union, let's get out of the European Union. And he's done that. And now everything that he seems to be interested in is far more amorphous and culture warry in a way that you can't really have as definitive an impact. Uh, so maybe he'll just take the win and bow out. Because I mean, like, I don't like it, but he's fucking smashed it. From your lips, I hear, from your lips. <laughs> um, that completely objective historian Matthew Goodwin took the opportunity to eulogise um, Farage as one of the most consequential politicians of our time. A modern day what Tyler seems legit, doesn't it? Well, I think that it's uh, all dependent on the tone in which you're saying it. I don't think that many people could disagree <laughs> that he's one of the most consequential politicians of our time. It would just uh, be the difference between he's one of the most consequential politicians of our time or he's one of the most consequential politicians of our time. <laughs> ah. I still can't see what Tyler flogging happy birthday videos on cameo <laughs> it's only 60 <laughs> quid i reckon I, I might go for it i wonder what we can get him to say for 67 quid <laughs> i wonder <laughs> if we can get him to record an entirely pro-european message anyway um completing the panel welcome to the fresh prince of diplomacy former foreign office mover and occasional shaker arthur snell hello arthur hi alex on Sunday, the story broke that Nazanin Zagari Radcliffe was no longer under house arrest. Hurrah! Her ankle tag had been removed. Good news, adulterated by the fact she faces more court dates this week. What's going on there? Is this likely the beginning of the end to this saga or just another chapter? Well, it's very hard to tell. She, of course, uh, should be allowed to do whatever she wants. As, as everybody knows, her husband and daughter are now back in the UK. She's desperate to be reunited with her little girl. There is what should be a completely unrelated ongoing dispute between the British and Iranian governments over 400 million quid to do with a arms deal back in the 1970s that went sour. Mm. And she's effectively been held hostage over that unpaid sum. Wow. I, yes. And, and uh, 
her and several other British nationals who are less publicised but in a sort of similar plight. Will it be uncomfortable for Boris Johnson that people may be reminded and I, for one, intend to remind them regularly of his disastrous part in this sorry affair? Well, yes, and of course there are two disastrous parts. The the thing that everybody needs to be reminded of, uh, and most famously, was when he sat there in the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee at the time when he was Foreign Secretary and said completely incorrectly that Nazanin Zahari Radcliffe had gone to Iran to teach journalism, which, of course would be a rather sensitive issue in a country that has a, has a very uh, sort of paranoid attitude to the UK as a sort of former would-be colonial power, when in fact she had just gone there on holiday to see family. She mm. has many Iranian family members. But the other part of, of Boris's sort of sorry record in this tale is that he, as Foreign Secretary, uh, authorised a briefing to the Sun newspaper in 2018 a briefing that, that was printed in the Sun, that uh, Britain would pay off this ongoing debt, this 400 million quid that I mentioned earlier. And it is said that it's that, more than his misstatement in the House of Commons, which had really undermined Nazanin's situation in Tehran. Either way, Boris Johnson has done nothing for her except to prolong uh, her situation and, and make it worse. Monday was a long-awaited day for many parents, in England at least. Most kids, with some exceptions, are back in school. Devolved administrations are taking a more cautious approach, phasing the return. The BBC was billing this as the end of an era. It seems that the how long can you spend with the people you love before you hate them experiment is finally winding down. Arthur, how does it feel today, bally high peaceful or overlook hotel eerie? Well, I have to admit, uh, it felt a bit quiet. And of course, I'm completely delighted that schools have reopened in England. But I was also a little bit sort of missing having the kids around. (laughs) We know that a return to school will put upward pressure on the infection rate. This is one of those facts everyone accepts, okay? This might imply that extra measures are needed to suppress it, but extra measures, I see none. The government has called this a big bang strategy. Is is a giant explosion what we should be aiming for in the middle of a crisis? It, it, it doesn't sound like the, the first thing you'd go for. <laughs> I rather sense the government sort of feels it, it's run out of road in terms of clever strategies. And so it's decided that schools, in addition to educating people will now actually become the biggest uh, sort of testing operation in in the whole of the country. Mm. A friend of mine who's actually a headmaster of a of a large secondary school in London sort of pointed out that now that he runs a major testing facility he might as well take up some of the other things that the government might seem to be quite bad at so he's wondering whether he might deal with the housing crisis next. <laughs> a, fr- a friend of mine who's a teacher call- calls it the fuck it strategy. Mm. Do the devolved administrations have the balance better or does, you know, the month-long lag between lockdown release, rising infections and rising hospitalizations make their two, three-week delay between steps pretty meaningless? So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's important to note that it's England where schools have reopened all in one. In Scotland and Wales, there are slightly different approaches as I understand it, in Scotland, 
next week uh, you'll have all the primary students going back and secondary on a sort of part-time basis. But ultimately, I don't think anyone's got the perfect solution. You know, that over the duration of this pandemic, people have pointed to Scotland as possibly pursuing a better strategy, but then death rates there have been very high as well. So I don't think anyone has a magic solution. The only thing we can hope is that the really major factor that's changed is the vaccination. So there are now a huge number of people who've had at least one jab, and that does seem to change the equation. Mm. Ros, evidence from Italy suggests that children are more susceptible to these new variants, uh, and the latest uh, Office for National Statistics data has children as leading new infections when compared to adults. Are we walking into another really obvious COVID-19 trap? No, I don't think we are. Uh, I would point out that the reason why children are leading their infections is because quite a few of them have already been in school uh, at much higher proportion than in the first lockdown. Uh, And the lockdown, I think we can all agree, has still worked. In fact, just as an aside, this has caused quite a great deal of resentment among parents who see others as they see it gaming the system or parents exercising their right to a place when one parent isn't working at all, while others are working, have two parents working mm. full time. I know parents who are furious and do not know how they are going to make eye contact with other parents at the school gate because they are so angry about the way in which their children have been deprived of any human contact for nearly three months uh, with other children not only human contact with other children, while the others have been allowed into school. So that's a big thing that needs to be got over. But it's not a trap because, you know, we're unlocking society slowly. And there's the falling figures for deaths and hospitalizations and cases. And the arrival of the very effective vaccines justifies. And we're unlocking schools first for very good reasons, because the harm done to children by banning them from learning and socialising with other children is many times greater than that of other lockdown measures. Mm. And they Mm. are at very little personal risk of suffering badly from COVID. So the estimates I've seen from SAGE today is that opening schools will raise R by 0.2, but that they would expect this to be mitigated by the effect of the vaccine. And of course, a third of people, everybody in this country, not just adults, have been vaccinated, had their first dose Mm. now. So that is very encouraging. Now, on testing, the government has issued guidance and also on wearing of masks. Um, but, but the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, popped up on Sophie Ridge on Sunday looking, as usual, surprised to still have a job and having no answers as to whether and how schools might enforce that guidance. Has the government farmed out to schools all the difficult bits? Schools are pretty good at enforcing rules. I think you'll agree that schools often have a lot of rules, many of which when I was at school I saw no point in and yet were effectively enforced. And um, I think that pupils realise the re- why they're being asked to wear masks. They realise that it's helping them a bit, not an enormous amount, but it's making it slightly more likely that they can stay in, in schools. And I don't, I don't. I think it's actually quite good to hand the issue over to heads because it gives them a bit more autonomy And I think parents often trust their heads more than they do trust Gavin Williamson. (laughs) Good point. Well made. Um, Is there anything parents can and should do to improve the situation? We hear, for instance, reports of parents refusing consent for kids to be tested. Is that fair enough or is it unreasonable? I personally think it's not very helpful. 
my own daughter was uh, tested this morning. Thankfully, it was negative. So that was a huge relief because if she had been positive, she would have been off for another 10 days. And I think that's why a lot of parents, well, I don't know about the figures, I don't, but, but some parents are worried uh, that it means another 10 days off education, and particularly as you can't, you can't find out if it was a false positive by getting a PCR test to confirm it or not. They're mm. not allowing that to mm. happen with the test done in school. So I think that's been the main driver of unhappiness about that. And there are, of course, three tests that are done in school. So we're all keeping our fingers crossed that that they're all that there aren't any false positives. The risk, of course, is that the prevalence in the community in some parts of the country is sufficiently low that it's more likely to be a false positive than a genuine positive. Mm. I hear the the strategy seems to rely almost entirely on the success of the vaccination program, severing the link between infections and hospitalizations. Is that a sensible way forward? Well, I think that uh, given that my outlook on the thing will be seen through the only lens that I have, which is basically vibes, uh, I think that the the vibes seem right uh, to be doing this sort of thing. It, it does look from the data that things are decreasing rapidly enough that you certainly would expect that the vaccination is having a very good effect on transmissions and hospitalizations mm. and that sort of thing. And I do wholly accept that these sorts of things can't carry on indefinitely. You know, I'm not I'm not a parent myself, but uh, <laughs> every parent who I've spoken to in my own life about this uh, in the last couple of weeks has basically been counting down the minutes till today. <laughs> take take it away from like, me. Look, we all we're, we're a loving family and everything's <laughs> fine at home. But dear God, as someone put them, uh, <laughs> take it away from me. I don't know what a quadratic is, and <laughs> someone in this world must do this for me. Uh, and so I'm I'm just very hopeful. It's it's been really not. I live uh, next to a school, and so the flat sort of overlooks the playground. And just seeing that return to a sense of normality. Hey, well, you're like, practically yeah. an expert. And you, and you were reserved about giving us your opinion. <laughs> it's just it's just nice seeing it back and I hope no one gets ill. <laughs> That's a, I'm I'm being a, I'm being a booster on this one. Yeah, I mean my my only concern is that from my basic understanding much bigger numbers mean more of a possibility of new variants, and that that's the thing that can go wrong with it, I guess. Um, now, there seems to be a really tight government focus on catch-up, and they're talking about longer school days, more terms, summer school, which I'm sure will be delightful to you <laughs> living above a school. Um, now, after the year kids have had, is more change what's needed? Shouldn't they be eased in with their welfare as a priority over their economic potential, effectively? Or are the two concepts now basically the same? Well, the thing is, is that I, I feel as though if we get into a situation where decades down the line, we still see a real slump in the life chances of this particular cohort and everyone down the line is going like, oh, well, yeah, that's the COVID generation. Uh, of course, you'd expect that then we really don't want to see decades and decades of harm being wrought on these kids through absolutely no fault of their own. So if a way that that can be ameliorated is through more time in school or summer school, then that seems like a worthwhile thing to at least explore the idea of. The one thing that I would say with regard to that is that while I am not the parent of a child, I am the child of a teacher. 
and knowing uh, the reticence throughout my entire life uh, that all governments have had um, about taking teachers seriously and paying them properly and everything, mm-hmm. it certainly does seem like I would hope that if these extensions to a teacher's workload are going to be put in place that they at least receive something in exchange for it and some uh, acknowledgement and some financial support because it's not like they've been yeah. sitting on their ass the entire Fat time chance <laughs> yeah um, you'll take your one percent nurses and you'll be happy about it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh Roz- a lot of these changes to the way schools work are being discussed as potentially permanent. So people are talking about this in terms of the 1944 Education Act for our times. Is the opportunity to rethink education a blessing in disguise? And does Williamson command enough trust from key stakeholders like teachers and parents to pull it off? I don't think he's got a chance of bringing in a six-term year. I'd be amazed if he did. I think he's just trying to have some uh, come up with some uh, wheeze to make him distract attention from his own incompetence. Uh, if I was asked what we need to rethink, I would say it was the curriculum and exams rather than than school holidays, uh, particularly this year. Making and that's the only bit. That's the only bit they're refusing to rethink. Yeah, exactly. By the way, and that's that's really <laughs> quite frustrating because as I can go into more detail later, there is a lot wrong with the, particularly the primary curriculum. And making school summer holidays shorter is going to piss everyone off no end. And I'll tell you why. It's six weeks when you're already paying over the odds for a holiday that you have to have outside term time. And if it gets shorter, it will get even more expensive. And the other holidays will be in colder times of the year when it's harder to get kids to do stuff outside and there's fewer activities for them. I can see the value of a longer school day if it means more kind of physical activity and socialising, like if it was a you know sports club or something you could choose from. I don't think it would do any good for the school day itself to be longer because it's just going to exhaust kids and make them feel under pressure. Yeah, there's a limit to how much stuff you can absorb, isn't there? Now, Conservative Home, they do a monthly poll of grassroots Tories. It's not, it's, you know, it's hardly a hostile crowd. They gave Liz Truss a plus 86 rating and Dominic Raab, who doesn't know where France is, a plus 67. <laughs> they gave Gavin Williamson this week a minus 44, the only cabinet minister with a negative rating. I hear how the blithering <laughs> bollock is he still in a job? <laughs> The only explanation is something that I think should be deemed the grailing rule, which is just that you have you have one of them who's so unfathomably shit that the rest of them sort of be like, you go, oh, well, at least it's not like that guy. Uh, because, just, yeah, just, otherwise it makes absolutely no sense. It's just it, astonishing. I mean, every time I see him taking questions, he looks like he's in an episode of Quantum Leap and Sam Beckett just this second jumped in his body and he's looking around going, who am I? Where am I? What are these questions? Ros, on a more personal level, what have you learned about your kids' learning through this period? Oh, quite a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, I've listened to a lot of Zoom lessons. And of course, you know, we only had Zoom lessons in the second lockdown, uh, or rather the third lockdown. The second lockdown did not involve school closures. The first lockdown, we didn't have Zoom lessons. It was just worksheets and stuff. I think the most striking thing has been the primary English curriculum, which is just 
fucking awful. I mean, it, I compare it to asking <laughs> someone to do a simple DIY job and then like like screwing in something and then giving them a hundred piece DIY set and insisting that they know the names of all the tools and use all of them in order to fix the screw. You know, it is it is insane. I mean, I I am an editor. That's that's my primary job. I have a master's degree in a foreign language, and there are many grammatical terms which I constantly have to check. <laughs> that the year six and even year three are expected to know, and the idea, this pernicious idea that knowing grammar is liberating, is something I very much disagree with. It's not. I mean, when I was a child, <laughs> when I was a child, we didn't learn any grammar until until I learned French at secondary school. And that wasn't ideal either, because I literally didn't know what a verb was until I was 11. But this is the other extreme, and it's rooted in a way of thinking that's propagated by people who were forced to learn Latin at school and think that that kind of private school education is somehow is somehow the best preparation for the world and all the stuff that this generation is going to face, and they're going to face a lot, and they have to concentrate on fronted adverbials and learn them and to identify it's just insane arthur between the first big lockdown and this second spell is there something that you feel you did much better the second time round, or worse well i think what i did better was worry less about my kids education uh, so, <laughs> I, I, I know you mean this in the best possible way, but in my head, this is just you waking up every day thinking, fuck it. And like, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'd start drinking at breakfast time. So, what I mean is that, dear listener, what I mean is that I think, like a lot of parents in the first lockdown, I thought, well, how hard can teaching be? <laughs> I, I got stuck in. And it turns out it's quite difficult, and I'm crap at it. So uh, it, it's it's also the case, of course, that that schools probably got better at delivering teaching uh, remotely. Although, to be fair to my children's school, they were doing very well the first time around. Um, the difference was this time I stopped hovering around my kids when they were supposed to be doing their stuff, and therefore we had fewer arguments. I've no <laughs> idea whether they learnt more, but everyone was less stressed, so that's good. Now, on that subject, I hear homeschooling was on the rise in the UK before the pandemic, like people doing it voluntarily. <laughs> Almost 60,000 kids were registered as homeschooled in England. Yet in this last year, everyone has been talking about its deficiencies, both in terms of education and socialization, how it scars kids. Can we continue to allow parents to homeschool, knowing what we know now? Well, I, I don't really know on this, because on the one hand, you don't want to you know, have all of these deficiencies that you talk about. And also when people are homeschooling, a bit of you does sort of go, why? And like, <laughs> is it so that you can do the whole dinosaurs were put there as a trick thing? Because I'm a bit suspicious it's the whole dinosaurs were put there as a trick thing. Um, but equally, you don't want to be entirely prescriptive of the way that people can uh, or choose to raise their own children, you know? And uh, what one can always imagine... In, in things like this, I always worry, what's the thing that the worst possible government could do with this power and uh, the power to sort of uniformly dictate the only way that you can teach your children is probably quite a dangerous one. Mm. Hand on heart, um, has the last year made you thankful not to have kids or more determined to join the club? Oh, no, I, I mean, 
th- this situation would have been an absolute boon for me. Uh, in this case, because my mother is a retired primary school teacher who was outstanding at it and misses it. So if I was ever having any sort of trouble and I just had young ones, I could be like, here you go, mum. Hey, mum. Fun for a bit. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be absolutely fine. It'd be brilliant. And I, I'd just have, yeah, I'd just have a little person to hang around with and cuddle. Lovely. Systemic privilege, that is. Roz, regular listeners will know that you have found the experience a little stressful on occasion. But let me ask you now, what will you miss about having the kids around all day? There's a certain satisfaction in getting my son to understand maths concepts. I mean, there's no doubt that he has actually grasped some stuff in the last term, which previously he hadn't grasped. And that is somewhat reassuring i mean there's a eureka moment when they get it and you know they then they want to do it themselves but it would have been you know it would have been okay it would have been manageable had i not actually had paid work to do it's then it just all falls apart and unfortunately he has to be supervised some kids don't have to be he has to be supervised there's no way he will focus his attention on a zoom or a worksheet or a video unless you've stand you know you sit next to him and force him to do it and that's been (laughs) such hard work you know, if I were in a studio right now, uh, if I was doing this podcast in the studio, I, I could show you the scratches on my arm where I've punished myself for shouting at him because I was so angry with myself for putting a kid who was already deprived of all his friends through my anger. And that's just been bloody awful. And I'm a comfortable middle class woman with most of the privileges you could possibly hope to have. And I, and that's that's been my experience. And I, I I hate to think what it's been like for other people, not as privileged as me. Well, listen, if you're so worried about it, you can't um, be a bad parent. Yeah. And Roz, the the other thing that I would say on this is that you saying there's a certain satisfaction to seeing my son fully grasp maths concepts. That's the most Indian shit I've heard all day. (laughs) (laughs) It's very soothing to hear because I think that that's exactly what my parents would have been saying about me if I were in your son's situation. (laughs) Now, the advantage of controlling the publicity around the budget as tightly as Rishi Sunak did in the early part of last week is that you get to deliver it in a hazy glow of positivity. The disadvantage is that it inflates expectations, and by the end of the week, everyone is pissed off at you as they realize the product doesn't quite match the sales pitch. In this case, behind the rhetoric of leveling up, it turns out that much of the Chancellor's spending is being funneled into Conservative constituencies, including his own. Clap for carers had turned into a slap for carers, and despite promises of stimulating the economy, the overall tax burden is set to rise to its highest level since the 60s. Austerity, it seems, is alive and well and living in number 11. I hear, how does Richmond, the jewel of North Yorkshire, end up more eligible for levelling up money than Barnsley or Sheffield City? Is this just pork barrelling, plain and simple? Yeah, I mean, we... We're going to give the money to the places that voted for the Tories, uh, is just the inevitability uh, of it. And it has been really infuriating to see the prioritisation of relatively well-to-do places who just so happen to have senior government ministers as their MPs. And this is not to take away from the fact that I'm sure that within the constituencies of Rishi Sunak, there are pockets of deprivation and places that need to be helped out and addressed but it's just um 
very galling, particularly in light of uh, just before we started recording, I saw this video that was a sped up person moving through queue showing how many people were queuing for a food bank in London. And it was uh, the food bank on the sort of main road that I would go down to get to primary school every day. And the roads that it was snaking around were the roads that I lived in, the first house that I lived in mm. uh, as a child. And this is obviously a very deprived part of northwest london uh very reliably labor voting uh part of northwest london and you're just seeing this queue of hundreds uh snaking out of a food bank over there and it's infuriating to see that some of the places in the country that seem like they least need it are being Mm -hmm. prioritized over places that have just been decimated through 10 years of austerity yes london of course has been particularly badly hit by both Brexit and the pandemic. And I think Sadiq Khan has a, a point when he says that, you know, the levelling up plan seems to be about levelling down everyone who is doing well rather than mm. levelling up anyone else. How do you think this will play in red wall areas politically that were promised they'd be levelled up and built back better? Will, will, they, will, they, will that turn to anger quickly? Well, I think, you know, like everyone likes the idea of having a cash injection in their area. And I'm also not going to say that London hasn't received a lot over the course of my lifetime. I can understand why people who live in other parts of the country, uh, other parts of England and other nations in the country more broadly might be uh, pissed off by that. But I don't know. I kind of remember that thing of, um, you know, that famous thing that Margaret Thatcher did of, like, we want everyone to be here, like, raising her hands above. Yes, yes. The, and they the want, the, they want everyone the, yeah, to yeah. be down here. And, and uh, I'm sort of like, that. that's what it feels like with the levelling down, right? Uh, yeah. Of just, like, we seem at the moment very content to let the places that are struggling under austerity struggle even further and give a slight boost to some people rather than a sort of very ambitious boost that one could hope would be possible at this time that should be transformational for the country. Yes, you yes. got old man Biden with his $2 trillion and we're just being here like, have you considered tipping your nurse? An ebbing tide grounds all boats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seems to be the same. More generally, I don't know if the panel is interested in this. I am. A, a barrel of salt pork was a common larder item for 19th century households. This is the provenance of the phrase, and it could be used to measure a family's financial well-being. Did you know that? No, but it certainly explains why very little funding is going to largely Muslim areas. (laughs) In in the novel The Chain Bearer by James Fenimore Cooper, he wrote, I hold a family to be in a desperate way when the mother can see the bottom of the pork barrel. So there you are. This bit will be edited out. (laughs) Rods, is an injurious 1% pay rise for NHS staff less than half what they were promised? The most obvious ever coming U-turn. I mean, it seems to me we're basically just waiting for the Marcus Rashford tweet now. Yeah, it it might be. I I think it's maybe more likely that they might get a COVID bonus because I noticed that Boris Johnson did not rule that out today. And that would be somewhat simpler. Um, to administer and for people to understand than the NHS pay scales and all the rest of it. Uh, but, I mean, more, more widely, 
it's worth it's worth noticing that we we're talking about NHS staff again, and a lot of the people who did the caring in this pandemic were not NHS staff. They were working in care homes or they were carers of other kinds often that's outsourced to private companies and they get paid very very little and they don't have all the uh all the benefits that people on nhs staff do and we just again you know we've completely forgotten about them in our focus on the nhs and it's just it's uh, the the enormity of the challenge facing the the health system and the social care system is such that yes it is important to pay people a decent wage, but much more important is actually sorting out, much more important in the round is sorting out the broken system and in particular the social care system, which is in a terrible state now and is struggling and, and, and has been struggling for years and years. With my economics hat on, I might argue that paying people shit money is intimately related to the system crumbling. That That's a, a different conversation for a different day. In in terms of the politics of it, is it just a huge own goal? I mean, these are the people that the government encouraged the nation to applaud in the street. And they are also the very front line in the vaccination program. They will come into direct contact with almost every voter in the UK in the next few months. And each and every one of them will be a reminder that they're being ill-treated. Yeah, uh, it is an old goal. I agree with you. I mean, I'm trying to think my way into how Rishi Sunak might be thinking. And he might, I can only venture to suggest, say that NHS jobs in the context of a massive recession and the unemployment that we're likely to see are pretty safe. And that that kind of security is worth a lot. And it will be worth even more as unemployment rises and that people in that context should not make too much fuss when they're pay rise is so small but that is uh, what i can only imagine that that is what is going through the, the rishi sunak's mind when you mm. know he 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 uh, makes these announcements arthur we seem destined to have that same infernal austerity debate um, the conservatives won it last time with facile analogies of household budgets and maxed out credit cards does this mean the result of the debate is predetermined or are things Quite different now. I think things are a bit different. It seems that people will have experienced this pandemic and seen the way that the government can spend huge sums of money. And we, we haven't talked about the fact that test and trace now costs significantly more than mm. the rest of the NHS all added up. So no one can be in any doubt about that. But I think on the other hand, there's a lot of power to that sort of as, as you rightly say, rather facile argument that this is like a household, and if 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 we can't um, you know pay back our our sort of debts, then then we're going to run out of money. Whereas, of course, as you know, listeners will know, governments operate over hundreds of years, and it, it's a completely different question about servicing debt rather than just paying back a specific number. In that juxtaposition between you know the big fat money going to test and trace, to various Tory donors and ex-girlfriends, and the unfairness in this budget, does this give Starmer a sort of path to victory? Can he put together a pretty compelling narrative of cronyism? He ought to be able to. I don't think Britain has much tolerance for what feels like pretty egregious and blatant corruption and as you say you know is it whether it's the um guy who used to run a pub who somehow manages to get 
man Matt, Matt Hancock's WhatsApp number, and 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 next thing you know, he's got multi million pound uh, contract, or or there's a whole series of these stories. Mm. That kind of thing seems to sit very badly with the average British voter. But I feel the challenge for Starmer, and, and I don't want to sound too negative, but I do feel a bit sort of negative about this prospect. Challenge for Starmer is I think the British public have kind of lost faith in the ability of the state to make their lives much better. And I think that's one of the byproducts of the austerity years. So mm-hmm. even if you think back to uh, the last election, now, of course, you could argue, well, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't credible in the way that Starmer is. But Corbyn and McDonnell were offering a relatively, by international standards, a relatively middle-of-the-road sort of centre-left platform in terms of public spending. And it was ridiculed as a sort of ludicrous, free-for-all, you know, kind of the government will pay mm. for you to go on holiday and give you a free microwave. And I think a lot of the people who have turned to the Conservatives will need a lot of convincing that the government could ever make their lives better. So they're not actually voting one way or another in the expectation of improvement. It's more about these sort of cultural things that the Tories have managed to tap into. Hmm. But uh, traditionally, voters have forgiven those more unsavoury qualities of Conservatives in exchange for what they perceive as ruthless competence. I hear this government is ruthless, certainly, but is it competent enough for this equation to work for them? Or will they end up being seen as both corrupt and incompetent? What I don't understand about the mythological competence of the Conservative Party is that, right, like, I'm 30, so I'm young, but I'm not young, young, right? Like, there is a full generation of the voting public who are younger than me in Gen Z, right? And so my political memory, I remember John Major being the Prime Minister, and then Blair Brown, Cameron May, Johnson, and and. At what stage were these people supposed to be competent? Because it's clearly before the memory of someone who's 30. Uh, And so I don't know how long this Mm. sort of thing can perceive in semi-mythological status before people can just go, maybe it's just fully mythological status. As unlocking down begins, what can you expect from post-pandemic nights out? Will testing be the new face control? And do socially distanced dance floors means we can finally dance as if nobody's watching because nobody's actually watching? (laughs) Michael Kill is CEO of the Nighttime Industries Association. My name is Michael Kill and I'm the Chief Executive for the Nighttime Industries Association. The Nighttime Industries have been affected quite heavily in the UK because they've fallen outside of the criterion eligibility presented by government. But also on top of that, one of the biggest challenges they've had is they've had no roadmap, no understanding of what the future looks like. So planning, communicating with their customers and communicating with their staff has been extremely difficult. For many years now, we have seen the likes of nightclubs turn into multifaceted spaces, which are used day and night. There is very clearly an evolution. We've seen that because of customer requirements. We've seen that because of the experience change. But we've also seen the influences from different parts of the world. You know, we can talk about things like brunches and day parties and uh, and things like that that have, have started to change the way, the habitual way that we enjoy socialising more than anything and the entertainment expectation, both from day and night. So there is an evolution. 
people who have done very well within lockdown uh, have been the ones that have been able to pivot quite quickly. We have seen uh, things like Printworks and uh, Studio 338 in London. We've seen SWG3 in Glasgow do an amazing job looking at comedy. There is some fantastic work being done right the way across the country. You know, some of these people turned into food banks, which supported the community before they actually turned back to their normal sort of operations. So there has been an amazing sort of community spirit amongst all of these people. But I think the one thing that's going to come off the back of this is they are going to diversify, they're going to future-proof, and they're going to start looking at being able to pivot very quickly and monetize against some of the challenges that have been presented within this pandemic. What are nightclubs going to look like? An amazing question. I get asked quite a lot. I think it's going to be a mix of mitigating measures from rapid testing, which is a short-term bridging mechanism to get us open until the vaccination really sort of hits the populace. We're then looking at surface uh, treatments, and we're also looking at things like pathogen reduction systems, which are HVAC ventilation systems, which kill the virus before it actually enters the air circulation. So it, it crosses out the three key elements that we're trying to challenge, which is contact surface and aerosol. So if we can achieve that with a strong operational strategy, there's no reason why these events and spaces can't be open with those mitigating measures in short until we have the confidence of the vaccination and we're able to go back to a complete 100% capacity without those restrictions. There are some very, very clear challenges in terms of the government and what they need to do. But the biggest thing is, is they need to stick to the plan. Or if it's changing, then they need to communicate that in good time. Because you can't just open the doors of a pub or a nightclub or a venue or an, you know, an event. We have to understand it so that we can build to it. Arthur, the nighttime sector accounts for 6% of UK revenue and 8% of UK employment. Like the arts and entertainment sector, it appears comparatively neglected by the government. Why do you think that is? I suppose it's because there's a lack of political sort of mystery around it. So people are obsessed with fishermen in this country, you know, with their tiny little industry, but it's sufficient to uh, cause us to cut an incredibly bad deal with the EU. But there's some sort of weird kind of conservative heroism about people who take to the sea in small ships, whereas, you know, serving cocktails to, um, you know, sloshed um, bankers on a Wednesday night doesn't have the same attraction, even if it is actually employing many more people and driving a lot more economic growth. Yes. So maybe the solution is to put bankers on a small ship and <laughs> send them out <laughs> into a force 12 ale. <laughs> Ros, Ros the, the sort of future-proofing Michael Kill was talking about, is this something that only applies to business? Or do more of us have to begin asking, if my sector disappeared tomorrow, what could I pivot to? Yes, we do, because what applies to business applies ultimately to anybody who's working for that business. And it's not just the way the pandemic has upturned our expectations of what a reliable job is. I mean, who, you know, if you were a party planner before the beginning of pandemic, if you were a waitress, you could not imagine that this would come along and completely take away your job. But also because of AI and what that's making it possible to do, that happens in quite unexpected ways and people become unemployed quite fast. And so I don't think we've fully grasped yet 
the extent that that is going to affect the workforce in the next decade. Mm. So you mm. you could see a little bit in that terribly crass ad the government ran about six months, nine months ago. I don't know if you remember the one. There was a dancer and it said that she I, I remember gave it, it yeah. to tech. And and that was a really, really crass example because it somehow, you know, it implied that she was never going to get her job back. And also it was suggesting something that didn't use the same skills at all as the ones that she was she 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 was an expert <laughs> in. And um, but Nonetheless, I think certainly I always have in the back of my mind, if this goes tits up, what do I do next? Um, and, and I think ideally, although it's a big ask, I think everyone should have that mindset too. I hear going out or, you know, a good pub crawl, going from one place to another, is sometimes meticulously arranged if you're a freak, but <laughs> it's usually spontaneous. Is this degree of planning that will be required likely to make going out such little fun that loads of people just won't bother so two points here firstly mr kill being ceo of the nighttime is the most gangster shit i've ever heard and <laughs> secondly i feel as that like i'd i'd do a spreadsheet for a pint like if if i've got to do a spreadsheet for a pint I will do the spreadsheet for a pint. I don't know. To a certain extent, I think that we're underplaying quite how soon in our lives this might not have to be the case anymore. Like, mm. I, I do honestly think that by the summer, we will be able to do this sort of thing without having to scan loads of shit and um, put everything into Excel beforehand. So, yeah, I'm, I'm being a booster again. I'm today's, I'm today's booster. I'm this week's booster. From your lips. <laughs> Finally, few of us have spent so much time uh, surrounded by our stuff and assessing the functionality of our personal space as we have for the past year. Viewers of our live shows will be familiar with a wall of vinyl that is usually my background. According to 2014 research, over a third of us collect something. Collecting is a comfort. And when you're working from home with an eBay tab open, it's also a danger. <laughs> but decluttering is also cathartic. Should we collect less stuff or just lean in and revel in it? Have our panel cleared the decks following the teachings of St. Mary Kondo, or have they gone all tombs and are by now living in a labyrinth of newspaper stacks? I hear, do you collect anything? Uh, scars and stories, and I've too many of both. Uh, <laughs> I think... Um, I don't know. What do I collect? Like, I'm self-employed. Five years worth of receipts. That's uh, I'd probably bury someone under that if I needed to. Uh, I have, over the course of this particular lockdown, started assembling uh, the the sort of library of my dreams, which largely consists of loads of old ass dead political philosophers. And I think that this is all hopefully uh, on the path that, you know, decades from now, if homeschooling is once again necessary, I will able to not so subtly push my offspring towards a very particular kind of degree. You hear that, Roz? He's already homeschooling the children he doesn't have, and all you do is complain. <laughs> Look, preparing for the education of the children that you don't have is deeply necessary from yeah. an Indian perspective. <laughs> it's, all, it's also much easier to homeschool <laughs> fictional children. <laughs> um, Roz, how about you? Are you a hoarder or a thrower? 
Oh, a thrower. I hate mess. I hate crap lying around. It makes me, it makes me furious if I see stuff lying around that could be tidied away. And I've just got worse, uh, well, not worse, I would say better, uh, at that as I've got older. I just simply cannot bear piles of crap. Uh, it drives me insane. And in certain moods at certain times of the month, I may even venture to say that it just becomes intolerable. And I have to have what my kids call a crap frenzy. And I, I just throw it all out. <laughs> A crap frenzy. I love that. So you collect nothing, nothing at all. I do have a, you know, a minor sideline in, in maps. I like my old maps. Oh. And I will always, if I'm going to a secondhand bookshop, I will always head towards that little basket they have, which has little small maps. <laughs> have a flick. Look, this just, all this shows is that one person's crap is another person's treasure. You know, I, I threw out 200 maps yesterday. I don't, <laughs> oh, no. I don't think about it in the slightest. They're oh, all from the 1700s no. or something. I didn't care. Are they what? are they still in this skip? Are they still in this skip? No. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I said throughout. I burnt them. I burnt them all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I just can't believe I'm hearing this. Arthur, how about you? Has lockdown made you hold on to things or given you the time to declutter? Well, I try to declutter. I I live in a house. I I bought my house from my aunt, um, and she had spent her entire life there. And prior to that, my grandparents and and before so there is generations of shit lying around i could damn your white arthur (laughs) (laughs) i i could fill skips i can you know i'm constantly finding bizarre i found a chest full of sort of weird seashells the other day oh Um, god i thought you were going to say teeth or eyes (laughs) (laughs) we got rid of all the colonial stuff because that was a bit embarrassing um Jesus Christ! Heads of rare um, African animals. We we thought that we didn't need to have that anymore. Um, But but what I do is I I send these emails to my immediate family saying I'm planning to get rid of you know colon this item which no one has ever thought about for fifty years and then I get this avalanche of messages back saying you can't do that you know I'm always talking about this and you know so so I'm just. I'm in a constant battle with my relatives, basically. Maybe you should rent a storage cage and make them all pay for it. Um, A bloody good idea, yes. Just say very quickly to Arthur that if you are feeling particularly guilty about any of that colonial past and you got any Indian stuff... Feel free to whack it towards Mr. Shah over here because I'll, uh, you know, I'll wash that guilt right off your hands and have some very nice decorations. Okay. It'll be lovely. All right. We, I, I, we, we, may, we may have a deal on the way. <laughs> I think my, my attitude is one of balance. It's like collect just one thing. You know, collecting is about a channeled obsession. So declutter everything else except the thing you collect because that makes more space for the thing you collect, you see. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to our right royal panel, Ahir Shah. Hey! Arthur Snell. Thank you. And to Ros Taylor. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily, the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. We can't promise you fat PPE contracts in exchange, but we can promise an honorary salute at the end of the show. And here are some now. Thanks from me to Matthew Giles, Ben Walker and Julie Wheelwright. Hello and best wishes from me to Chris Rand, J, just the letter J, and Mark Northfield. 
And it's a big thanks from me to Andrew Douglas, re, that is just R-Y, the two letters. Very intriguing. I would have thought yeah, Very intriguing. And Lindsay Dickinson. And finally, hello and best wishes from me to Rick Ferguson, James Wilkinson and Alison Bland. Catch you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andreev with Ahir Shah, Ross Taylor and Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.